Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2 So Dante is suggesting that that paradisal consciousness, that the, that the litmus test for entering it in his day is the Eucharist. And it is also the preparation for entering. It's the, the preparation for entering it into that state of consciousness because it forces us to capitulate the, the worldview, the cosmology that is part of that middle ground. It's simply, the Eucharist makes absolutely no sense in terms of that middle ground cosmology. And when we try to make it make sense in terms of that middle ground cosmology, we rob it of its meaning. That great story of Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, she goes to this conference in the 50, 50s of, of uh, literary people and religious people, and they're all talking about the relationship between literature and religion. She's sitting at this table eating you know, rubber chicken with these highfalutin people, and they're, they're you know, theologians and biblical scholars and writers, and, and it's a very heady crowd, and they're all talking in great solemn tones about how what a marvelous symbol the Eucharist is. And she sits there, you know, biting her lip until she just can't, until she tells about this in her letters, until in the middle of one of their sentences she blurts out, well, if it's only a symbol, the hell with it. <laughs> the hell with it. Because to call it a symbol, see, the word symbol, like the word, well, like the word projection, is the barrier to final participation. And to call it a symbol is to, is to break the bridge down again, is to refuse to experience it as the thing itself and to condescend to it. And the other thing I, that comes to mind about this is an experience I had. I'll share it with you. I've shared it with you before, but in this context, I, I was one time standing in line to go to, to receive the Eucharist. And uh, suddenly I had this thing flash through my mind. Uh, because I've done that mindlessly innumerable times, had this thing flashed in my mind, which was the people in Jonestown standing in line with their little cups of cyanide. And 900 of them died, or whatever it was. And there I was, and I, I suddenly realized, and then I flashed to that scene where the Eucharist was instituted. And I thought, you know, the atmosphere at the institution of the Eucharist originally was closer to the atmosphere at Jonestown than it was to the atmosphere in most churches where the Eucharist has happened. And then I thought, and I'm not trying to romanticize that tragedy as a tremendous demonic and deranged and sick and tragic and just all of that. But in some horribly perverse way, those people touched on Eucharistic truth that most churches do not touch on. So, being ex experimental, I said, all right. And I stepped up and took the Eucharist under those circumstances. 
Now, what happens is I take the Eucharist and I turn around to go back to my seat and guess what? I look up and I see these other people as though I've just taken my little, my little, uh, you know, cup of, and I think, hey, look at you. Where have you been? I see them as though, I see them as people that I'm going to spend my last five minutes with. And it's like seeing the eyes of Beatrice in everybody. Well, hello. Where have you been all my life? Let's love each other. You want to? Huh? So for Dante, it was the eyes of Beatrice. And he says, under the right circumstances, I think that's implied, under the right circumstances, it can be there in the Eucharist. That, and Barfield echoes that, that bridge between what Dante calls ver primo, that first truth, what Barfield calls original participation, and what for Dante is the paradiso consciousness, what Barfield calls final participation, can be there in the Eucharist. Dante's offering a path. He's not saying it's the only path. And that's important. Uh, and But the beauty of the Eucharist is that it is it is such a an outrage to our usual mindset which is to say it doesn't matter what you think it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter who you know it doesn't matter uh, how smart you are or how wise you are or how holy you are none of that matters and to enter a place where none of that matters. I mean, it, at the, the Last Supper, Jesus didn't say, uh, take this and think about it. Take it and eat it. And to enter that space where it's that elementary is itself the beginning of the move into the paradisal consciousness. It, 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 in a way, it's like it's like Mother Teresa Salty's done that beautiful sculpture. It's like Mother Teresa picking up that little baby, and people say to her, "You know, there are five million of these babies within within ten miles of here," and she says, "Well, I just I've got one of them right here. It's it has that elemental quality. Just take it, and eat it." And the beautiful thing is that we're locked in this little brain that goes a hundred miles an hour. Take this and eat it. And just get that right down there with that reality and then you can open up to the mystery. There are a lot... I know, I know a lot of people that participate in the Eucharist. I'd like to send them to a Quaker meeting. As a matter of fact, one of the things about talking about offending, not offending, but... Uh, unless you do, unless you, unless you go through that Jonestown thing that I went through, that cures you of a lot. But uh, the other thing about, like you say, being part of a of a traditional church, it, the first thing you have to get over is that there you sit and you say, 
you look over there and you and you see somebody who's who's still in original participation with regard to this guy. And you say, that's idol worship. What am I doing? This is idol. God, what is this? You know? And so then for a while you sit there and figure out the law of the pendulum with regard to it all. And, uh, hey. But, uh, to get over that, realize that that it uh, doesn't matter why you're there, what you think. Well, I, I, I don't know. Jesus was always, he, his biggest problem was with the sophisticates. It was with the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the priestly class and the lawyer, you know, the religious lawyer, the canon lawyers, all that. That was his big problem. Uh, so here's Jesus. He just said, well, I know how to undercut that. I'm not going to leave something back around the final statement that they can turn into, they, they can, you know, we'll just leave them this thing. Just eat this. What I do each week could be compared to uh, putting the worm on the hook and throwing it out there into this stream, which is Dante's poem, or whatever it is we're studying. And I let the poem pass by my line two or three or four times to see if there's anything in there that's gonna that's going to uh, catch. Uh, well, this week I did that, and I kept doing that, and I kept doing that, and there was nothing happening. Although the material is very intriguing in many ways, and I thought for sure that uh, because I looked at my notes from several years ago when we taught this, and there was a lot of interesting stuff, but this time it wasn't happening. So I sat there, and, and to explore the analogy a little bit, here's, here's essentially what happened. Uh, after a while, I just sort of propped the pole up against a rock and started, you know, wandering around, daydreaming. And pretty soon, I uh, picked up a few flat rocks and uh, began skipping them on the, just on the... That is to say, I would be reading along, and there would be this little line that would pop out. And I would notice that instead of it drawing me into the... A scrutiny of the text, it was just causing my mind to go careening off that line. And uh, and so what happened is I threw a few of these flat rocks uh, and one of them hit so perfectly that it ended up in the thicket on the other side of the stream. <laughs> but it happened to be the one that interested me the most. So I would like to pursue that uh, issue which you will immediately or very quickly realize is is somewhat tangential to what Dante's talking about here, except for the fact that I would never have thought of it without him. And I think there's enough stuff in the text to um, to echo this theme that makes it legitimate to explore it. So I so I'd like to try to do that. And what I'd like to do is explore the question of history. Uh, there are two the two circles of heaven that that we inhabit briefly this week. One is the sphere of Mercury, and that's where um, that's where noble leaders, historical figures have gone who who performed their role in history, uh, but performed it under uh, somewhat questionable circumstances. That is to say, they did the right thing for the wrong reason. The reason they did it was for glory. Until they learn better, that is, and then of course they have they have learned better. That's why they ended up in heaven. So, and, and then the second uh, circle of that that we're we're in will be the circle of Venus, which is the circle of 
of romance and love. And uncharacteristically, I am not going to spend the dominant amount of time in the circle of Venus. As a matter of fact, I don't know, maybe a slight mention at the end, but I would like to explore something in the circle of Mercury or, if you will, in the circle of history uh, done for the wrong reasons or the historical responsibility met but not quite met or not fully met or not met deeply enough. And, of course, all this, one of the reasons my rock was skipping off the surface of this poem is because uh, all kinds of things the uh, the air was electric with people making history this week. Uh, I don't uh, I don't have a TV and I don't... Uh, I'm not a great. Uh, uh, I don't pay great attention to the to the to the media and the press and so on. Although I try to read my Christian Science Monitor uh, at night with my glass of brandy. But anyway, well, you couldn't avoid it. This week it was just happening. It was in the air. It was everywhere. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev were uh, doing something never done before, at least not in modern history. So I, a couple of other things came upon came. I came across, and I, because I was dealing with this Dante thing, I had, I thought I would start out with a quiz. I it it quizzed me in a way, and so I here's a quiz for you. Here are three things that are or have been happening this week. One is the obvious one, the one that was always on page one, and that is uh, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev signing a treaty on intermediate weapons and uh, historic. Okay, that was that one. Then the other one is, uh, and it was somewhere way back in the page 9 or 10 one day, and then it disappeared. And that was that an astronomer at the University of Hawaii, or maybe it's not the university, but anyway, at, a, at an observatory in Hawaii, had located a, a cluster of galaxies way out at the edge of the universe, a cluster of some... I don't remember now whether it was million or hundred million galaxies, tightly clustered, um, which means nothing to you. I can tell by looking at your faces. It meant a lot to him because it made it 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 once again added some strange little kink to complicate the existing cosmology, which is to say that if that many galaxies could be that closely clustered then the whole picture of how the universe came to be uh, is mathematically untenable. And so if that, and they don't quite know yet whether that's going to pan out, but if that pans out, then a new cosmology would be required to meet that new insight. Okay, so that was the second thing. And the third thing is that this is the second week of Advent. Uh, that didn't make the papers at all. So here's the quiz. The quiz is those three things, Reagan, Gorbachev, the million or hundred million galaxies at the edge of the cosmos, and that this is the second week of Advent. Which of those is truly historical? Which of those is the most historical event uh, it's obviously a rhetorical question. You may want to answer it. I mean, I, but ponder that for a little bit. Because how one answers that depends on what you think history is. 
And what I'd like to pursue tonight is the possibility that we haven't, we like Justinian in Dante's uh, Canto 6, uh, like Justinian, we have been in history and we've been doing history and thinking history and absorbed in history, but not, but really at the wrong level of history and not gotten to the depths of what history might be. I'd at least like to pursue that as a, as a possibility. And I've, over the course of years, I've said, I've had a lot of nasty things to say about history, but I usually try to put it in quotation marks, uh, the kind of history, and maybe I'll try to speak of that tonight too. But I'd like to take a hint from Dante and pursue this question of history a little bit. History, by the way, is has a muse. The ancients knew something about history we don't know. I, I'm not sure what they knew about it, but they knew enough about it to, to assign a muse to history. Now, uh, the purpose of the muse, the muse allows you to get in touch with whatever whatever her her bailiwick is, you see. The muse opens up the deeper meaning of something. So the muse of of poetry or comedy or song or whatever. Well, oddly enough, history has a muse. Now, that immediately tells us that the ancients were on to something about history which we don't, which we're not on to. Because when we think of history, we think of just the facts, please, and we don't need a muse for that. The closest we can, the closer we can come to, you know, to straight objective reporting. The, the better in touch with history we consider ourselves to be. Well, then why did the ancients assign a muse to history? Well, it's just a, that's a little teaser right at the beginning. Well, um, Justinian and others like him were able to live in history and perform what appeared to be reasonably competent historical work without really getting to the heart of it. In chapter 6... Uh, Justinian says, This little star embellishes its crown with the light of those good spirits who were zealous in order to win honor and renown. And when desire leans to such things being bent from the true good, the rays of the true love thrust upward with less force for the ascent. So they were, they were engaged in history, but only uh, it was the history of... Uh, who can be more prominent than whom? Uh, was the history of you make history and make the history books by being prominent, famous, notorious, etc. And they came to find out as they uh, moved on in life or into the afterlife that that was insufficient approach to history. So I have a little story. I love to make up these stories. Uh, so I, this is the story. Last week, I think I said this last week, that uh, we talked about original participation, which is that that uh, usually what we think of as primitive uh, consciousness, where one is one is still in tune with and part of, in some visceral way, everything. 
in each of our lives, it's the kind of consciousness we had as very, very small children. And then final participation, which is, which is the thing that the mystics discover and some of the poets discover and some of the artists and musicians discover, uh, but which, which most of us who live in this sort of middle ground between them get little hints of now and then. But, but it's, it's very fleeting. So we talked about that last week. And I, and I su- suggested that a symptom of the emergence out of original participation was the use of certain terms. So I'm going to pick up on that theme and then tell another story. I tell a little story about it. And the story goes like this. Let's say it's the, it's the seventh day. God is resting. You know, The world has been created. He needs a long rest. took a long time to create, and he needs a long rest. He's resting uh, in a pub. Let's have it be. This is, a, this is a God who wants to incarnate, right? So let's not have it be too uh, cerebral or celestial. He's resting in a pub with his feet up on a table. And uh, it's been, um, you know, some great expanse of time since the creation began. So he looks over his shoulder and says to one of the many uh, heavenly lackeys that must be around, he says, uh, keep an eye on things down there and tell me the minute one of those creatures starts using words like symbol and projection. As soon as you hear that, I want you to come report it. Well, something half an eon passes, and uh, one of these heavenly beings rushes up panting and says, uh, somebody just said it. They said them both. They said symbol and projection. And God looks up from his beer, and he doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. He knows it had to be, but there's a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, the, the way the way one feels about seeing one's children grow up, you know, there's this feeling of uh, mixed feeling. He said, "Also, okay, go back." He said, "Now we're in now now we're in the critical time." He said, "Go back, keep an eye on them, and come and tell me the first time one of them says history." And that, that puzzles everybody. See, they can't figure that one out. So they, they go back. Pretty soon this guy comes back. He says, one of them said history. And God breathes a sigh of relief. He says, okay, good. They're on to it. And uh, very puzzled, you know, this angel looks at him and says, but there's this other thing I've got to tell you. And that is the, the, person, the same person who said symbol and projection was the person who said history. And God said, well, was his name Moses? And the guy said, yes. He said, well, that's fine. I had a talk with him. Well, that's my little cosmic story. It was at the heart of the, of the Hebrew vision to understand that we had to leave original participation behind. And so they forbade the worship of graven images. They tried to remove the, the, the spookiness 
from creation. And they kept saying, you don't have to have a little shrine to the harvest god in order to have a harvest. You don't have to have a little shrine to the rain god in order to have rain. You don't have to have a little shrine to the fertility goddess in order to have children. There's one God who cannot be represented. You may not have graven images. You must wake up out of the slumber. And they didn't want to wake up because nobody does. And it was a long, hard road. Constantly, as still is the case with us human beings, constantly collapsing back into one kind of idolatry or another. At the same time, what, Mo what Moses brought down from the mountain was the understanding that their God was not only the God of all creation, was not only the God who brought all creation into being, but the God who brought all creation into being with a mere word. No big huffing and puffing, no big great cosmic war at the beginning of things just a word, all of that. And to make it ever so much more interesting, he was the God of history. Now that's the way we would say it. See, that's what Moses was saying. And that's what the, that's what the great mosaic uh, uh, genius inspired. We can say it because we're the products of several thousand years of it. And Moses didn't have a word for it. Our God is the God of history. Nobody had ever heard of history. There was no such thing. There was no such thing as history. History as a, as a context for life. I mean, there were things that had happened in the past. Expectations about things that might happen in the future. All of it was seen in a cyclical context, for one thing. But also there's no, no felt sense that it was, that it was the container for a, a continuum, a life process. So for a long time, it got used, the idea of history uh, got used at a superficial level. Uh, history was the chosen people, for instance. And uh, obviously it's up to us to, to do God's bidding in this thing called history. It's kind of a confusing idea, but whatever it must mean, surely at the minimal level it means that we must survive, and probably at a slightly evolved level it means we must thrive or conquer or be victorious or be prominent. And then you get something of this Justinian thing coming in. And so history gets lived out at that level, and it's wars and rumors of wars. And the analogy that came to me just today um, about that was, uh, it's a little bit like discovering, or I guess you can't discover something like a, 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 a convex um, lens, but it's a little bit like uh, fashioning a convex lens with which, under the right circumstances, one could look at the moons of Jupiter and using it, for several thousand years to, to start grass fires in the summertime without realizing that it could be used under other circumstances to see the motions of the heavens. 
And it seems, it seems to, I'm suggesting that we've, and, and now we're so familiar with this idea of history, that it, it might come as a shock to us that we're where Justinian was, which is we've been engaged in it at a level which is unworthy of it. We haven't lived up to what it really might mean. So, to go back to this idea of original participation and final participation, just for tonight I'd like to, for us to think, because we're only tonight we're in the realm of Mercury where this is part of what we might think. Let's think tonight about how a transition that's middle, we're in this middle ground between original participation and final participation, or what, uh, mythologically speaking, would be the Garden of Eden and, and uh, the uh, City of God. Those two, those are mythological images for these two, for these two realities, experiences. Middle ground might be something called historical consciousness. That is to say, something that will offer an opportunity of a connection. Now, last week I suggested that the thing that offers a continuity, a possibility of connection, would be the Eucharist, and I, and I, I'd like to, I'd like to come to some place tonight where we could see if there's a connection between the Eucharist and historical consciousness. Owen Barfield, who's the one that conjured up this idea of the t two forms of participation, said in a wholly other context, strangeness arouses wonder when we do not understand. Aesthetic imagination when we do. So what is the source of wonder? Strangeness is the source of wonder in original participation. Anything like a particularly loud thunderstorm or a stranger in the village or a coyote that for some strange reason is limping. Anything that's out of the ordinary might produce this um, sense of wonder. And what he says is that for those who understand, that is to say for those who have passed through that that uh, the trial that Moses suggested for the people of Israel put away that and have come to see the world in another way, they get in touch with that sense of wonder with what Barfield calls aesthetic imagination. And that's where, that, and that's why history has to have a muse. Because history must invite the imagination. I'm, I'm, you'll allow me just to say these simple declarative sentences like that, just for the purposes of getting, getting us going on this subject. And we don't think that history requires the imagination. We think it requires facts and documentation and research. Uh, but we don't very often think that history requires inspiration. Uh, do you, although, you you know, if you... I, I, I'm going to quote from Toynbee tonight. If you read Toynbee... Uh, so often in Toynbee, you close the chapter and you say, that was inspired writing. And you think, well, historians are not supposed to be inspired. They're supposed to cough up the facts. What I'd like to do is read two passages emphasizing that I, what I, I'd like for us to think about history when I'm reading these passages. Two passages, what I like to suggest is here are two people who almost accidentally stumbled upon 
what history might ultimately really mean. The kind of history that needs a muse and the kind of history that goes so much deeper than the sort of than the sort of documentary record of the winners and losers, which is what we usually think of as history. And the first is a passage from Carl Jung's memoirs, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And this is from a trip Jung made to Africa, which was tremendously influential for him. And he describes a, a certain moment uh, which was particularly profound for him. And I'd like to just read this somewhat lengthy passage in the context of trying to discover what history really is. I, I have to keep repeating this because it seems so so outrageously tangential to Dante. Dante has given us Justinian as a man who lived in history, worked in history, and discovered he didn't really know what history meant. He was living at the superficial level. And, and I'm suggesting the same may be true for us. And here's here's somebody who who maybe touched on what it might mean. So Jung says this, To the very brink of the horizon we saw gigantic herds of animals, gazelle, antelope, new, zebra, warthog, and so on, grazing, heads nodding, the herds moved forward like slow rivers. There was scarcely any sound save the melancholy cry of a bird of prey. This was the stillness of the eternal beginning, the world as it had always been, in the state of non-being. For until then, no one had been present to know that it was this world. I walked away from my companions until I had put them out of sight and savored the feeling of being entirely alone. There I was now, the first human being, to recognize that this was the world, but who did not know that in that moment he had first really created it. By the way, this is for theologically mature audiences only. Almost every line in this, particularly that last one, needs needs a 30-page theological appendix, uh, which I will not get into. You'll be happy to know. He goes on. There, the cosmic meaning of consciousness became overwhelmingly clear to me. The cosmic meaning of consciousness became overwhelmingly clear to me. Quote, what nature leaves imperfect, the art perfects, say the alchemists. Man, I, and in, in an invisible act of creation, put the stamp of perfection on the world by giving it objective existence. Now, I knew what it was and knew even more that man is indispensable for the completion of creation. That in fact he himself is the second creator of the world who alone has given to the world its objective existence without which unheard, unseen, silently eating, giving birth, dying, heads nodding through hundreds of millions of years it would have gone on in the profoundest night of non-being down to its unknown end. Human consciousness created objective existence and meaning, and man found his indispensable place in the great process of being. What he gets in touch with here, by the way, at, at first reading it seems a tremendously 
arrogant European presumption to go to Africa and see yourself as being the first person to see all that. But what Jung is talking about is the first person fully conscious as an individual human being. That is to say, the first person who was fully and totally out of original participation completely, who could at the same time begin to have that feeling of interconnectedness with it all. That is the essence of participation and is for for Carl Jung, I think, a, a sign of his own uh, uh, breakthrough into, the, into the, the realm of final participation. So unique in that sense, not in the sense of an, another member of the Homo sapiens species, but someone with that kind of radically individual consciousness could then turn and see. And he, what he sees is we needed to fall out of that original participation or that paradisal uh, oneness in order, to be, in order to see or recognize, to recognize the cosmos and perform that secondary act of creation on it, which is to know it, to experience it and to know that I'm experiencing it. Well, you glance at that, those comments of Jung's, and the first thing that comes to you, or to me, was, this is a sense of history that is pregnant with the notion of evolution, and even beyond that, with a cosmology, which is to say, it is an appreciation of human time, the context of human time, in terms of planetary or cosmic evolution and in the larger sense of a cosmology, the reason for being, the reason for consciousness and existence. And what I'd like to suggest is that that ultimately is what the is what the mundane little word history is aiming at. And we, like Justinian, didn't get it. We've been playing around like Justinian did. We've been moving the pieces on the board, thinking this was history. But surely to God, that is not what Moses had in mind when he came down the mountain and said, our God's a God of history. Surely he didn't mean to say that that means that we have to play earnestly at this game of winners and losers. Surely there's this deeper meaning. And like Justinian, we might come to that deeper meaning of what history is and then be able to perform our historical task. I keep having to say it because I, I, I want to make up for what appears to be leaving Dante behind. The, the second one, not quite as long, but almost... The American poet Robert Duncan. And here's just some personal reflections of his. He says, If I seek to picture man in his multiplicity for myself, and in that multiplicity to imagine a composition in which goods and evils belong to the order of things, 
If I seek in that order of things to read another order of creative significance, it is because I feel the world as creation and what is happening as a drama. The processes of the actual world as the deepest drama. The stars, the dark depths of space beyond, and the light streaming from the sun speak to us. The earth, the waves, the wind, the twittering of birds and the glances of animals speak to us. The fall of a rock, the shifting of sands can be read, and in one way of reading, the story of the earth is revealed. In another way of reading, elusive apprehensions of our own inner fate or identity in process emerge. The word God becomes necessary where there is an intense feeling of presence and oneness in opposites, an awe that cannot let go of contradictory elements, of an otherness in which I am more truly I. End quote. If we were to go out into the world and gather up those instances where our fellow humans have gotten some sense of what Barfield calls final participation or what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the reign of God. This would be among them, I think. They would be heavily weighted, probably, by mystics and poets. And Duncan is a little bit of both. But again, I suggest that's really what the notion history is aiming at. That's what we first get onto with the idea of history. So after all that, I'd like to go back, believe it or not, to Dante. And he introduces the Emperor Justinian. You, Dante's Emperor Justinian bears a very faint resemblance to the uh, to the Justinian of the historical record, but as I said, history requires a muse, and Dante has engaged in his, I guess. Uh, so what we are what we're here to think about tonight is Dante's Justinian, uh, not the Justinian of the of the historiographers. In line 10 of Canto 6, Justinian says, Caesar I was, Justinian I am. And this by itself is, is an important beginning, which is that he has made the critical distinction between his collective role or his archetypal role and himself. And that, for anyone performing a historical task, is a is the bare minimum. Otherwise, uh, you get to the place where you say, "I am France," you see, or some version of that. So he makes that critical distinction right at the beginning, and then he goes on. By the will of the first love, which I now feel, I prune the law of waste, excess, and sham. Before my work absorbed my whole intent, I knew Christ in one nature only, not two. 
he he shared one of the many recurring uh, uh, heretical variants, which was that 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 Jesus was usually the the heresy was that he was just divine and not human. So there was a. It's interesting that it wasn't very often the other way around. Um, I guess if it was the other way around, nobody would even bother with Christianity. But most of the time, it would be that heresy. And that was Justinian. He began, uh, as Dante has it, he began with that heresy. Christ was divine but not human. So he only knew him in that sense. So believe, so believing, I was well content. But Agapitus, blessed of the Lord, one of the popes, he, the supreme shepherd, pure in faith, showed me the true way by his holy word. Him I believed, and in my present view, I see the truth as clearly as you see how a contradiction is both false and true. He got reconciled to the idea that, not the idea, he, recon, he got reconciled to the mystery that it was both. And then, he said, he goes on, as soon as I had come to walk in the faith, excuse me, in the truth face way, God's grace moved all my heart to my great work, and to it I gave myself without delay. So, having arrived at this paradoxical understanding of who Christ was, he says, then I was able to give myself fully to the historical task. Now, there are many levels of this. One is, the most obvious one, is the incarnation. This is what we're talking about, is the incarnation. Whatever the incarnation might mean as a mythological idea, what it means is that the, that, that the Godhead is so committed to the human historical dilemma that he would enter it in order to reveal something to it. That he would come into that context. So what the incarnation does is that it hallows human life in all of its, in all of its uh, funny business and needs and craziness and anxieties and loves and passions and all the rest of it hallows it. And if you are, as Justinian was, charged with the task of performing a historical task in the practical order of things, to discover that God also was interested in that would be a tremendous boon to your own sense of work, what you were doing. This practical life lived on the ground, is in fact worthy of a divine incarnation, therefore worthy. So, at that very obvious level, it attracts him to his work. It says, this is significant work. But it, for me, more interestingly, it is that one does the implication here, is that Justinian didn't, and perhaps we don't, come fully alive unless we have a cosmology that gives us some context in which to carry out our lives. A cosmology that is true, 
and energizing. Most of us don't think that. See, most of us, I mean, we don't stop to think of it. If we stop to think, we might think of it, but we generally don't, and maybe if we stop to, we might not think of it. To think that somebody's cosmology matters. We tend to not think that. We tend to think, well, if they're doing the right thing, that's fine. But here it is, the cosmology is very important. For instance, the notion that the earth, the earth was flat, which was hardly ever a notion, by the way, it was just an assumption. The first person who said, I think the world's flat, was right on the verge of discovering something else. Because even nobody else had ever thought that. They just assumed it. But any, anyway, the, the idea that the world is flat uh, has a crippling effect on exploratory impulses because you might go out there and fall off. It's a cosmology that hampers the human spirit. It's also a cosmology that's false. So I, I use that as a very superficial example of what I think Dante is exploring here. Justinian could not engage in history until he regarded it as, as hallowed and until he had arrived at a place in his life where he could submit to paradox. Because the Incarnation, theologically, doctrinally, the Incarnation is a profound paradox. It is not a question of, of uh, patching together a human and divine nature. It is a being who was fully both at the same time, without exclusion. So not part, part God, part man kind of a thing. Justinian says he was perfectly satisfied to have it be one way or the other. And it was only after being receiving the tutorial from the Pope that he could see it as both. And one imagines he went through some struggles to get there. Most people who go through something like that do. And here's a little passage from Yeats about wrestling with that contradiction. He says, Every man grows tense with some sort of violence before he can accomplish fate, know his work, or choose his mate. That is to say, some contradiction has to be worked out before I can tap that deeper reservoir of energy. One tends in the first instance to be, to be dealing with the world of, of this or that. For Justinian it was divine nature or human nature. He said divine. Uh, we tend to deal. We tend to choose one and work out, and let the other one fall into the unconscious psychologically. And in order to tap our real source of energy, we've got to bring them both into consciousness. So, in the act of confronting this this contradiction, theological doctrinal contradiction, you get a picture of somebody who is also tapping his own source of energy. In 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 becoming a person who can who can comprehend something that is a contradiction, he says. And he says, as soon as I came to walk in the truth, faith, tr true. No, I'm sorry. I see the truth as clearly as you see how a contradiction is both false and true. So let's go back to where we usually are, where history usually is, which is not there yet, which is in the world of it being either one or the other either this or that. And I choose one, let the other one fall into the unconscious, or I let somebody else live out the other one, play out the other one. 
And so I can engage in a kind of... It can be the history of the chess game. Then I can engage in history of the chess game. I'll be this, you be that. I'll be black, you be white, or vice versa. That way we can... Or the tennis match. We can play that historical game that way. Melodramatic history. On the surface. Played on the surface like that, it finally is going nowhere. Because it's not what history is about. I think it was Henry Adams. I, I This popped into my head today and I, I, I didn't have time to go search it up. I don't know where I'd find it. I think it's Henry Adams. You, you tell me if it wasn't. I think I've talked about it here before. He said the decline of religion made it necessary to invent the steam engine. If nothing breaks through to me and I continue to sort of regard history as this thing that happens on the front page of papers or happens in books on shelves or some past event or some other thing. And it continues to be that superficial thing. What happens is it gets, it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And I want to quote two uh, reliable sources on the way in which it gets worse and worse. The first is T.S. Eliot and the second is Martin Buber. In Courses from the Rock, Eliot wrote this, A weariness of men who turn from God to the grandeur of your mind and the glory of your action. See, that was Justinian's problem. Not that he turned from God, but that he was carrying out his historical work for glory. To arts and inventions and daring enterprises, to schemes of human greatness thoroughly discredited, exploiting the seas and developing the mountains, excuse me, binding the earth and the water to your service, exploiting the seas and developing the mountains, dividing the stars into common and preferred, engaged in devising the perfect refrigerator, engaged in working out a rational morality, engaged in printing as many books as possible, plotting of happiness and flinging empty bottles, turning from your vacancy to fevered enthusiasm for nation or race or what you call humanity. Oh, there's a bill of particulars for you, some of which are uh, hit right at home, don't they? Here's Buber's version of it. This is nothing new to any of you, but this is just to get us in the mood for what this can be. Buber says, Speechmaker, you speak too late. Just a little time ago, you would have been able to believe your own speech. Now you no longer can. For a moment ago, you saw, as I did, that the state is no longer led. The stokers still pile in the coal, but the leaders have now only the semblance of control over the madly racing machines. And in this moment, as you speak, you can hear, as I do, that the levers of economics are beginning to sound in an unusual way. The masters smile at you with superior assurance, but death is in their hearts. They tell you they suited the apparatus to the circumstances, but you notice that from now on they can only suit themselves to the apparatus, so long, that is to say, as it permits them. Their speakers teach you that economics is entering on the state's inheritance, but you know that there is nothing to inherit except the tyranny of the exuberantly growing it, under which the eye, less and less able to master, dreams on that it is the ruler. And he concludes that diatribe with, Without sacrifice and without grace, without meeting and without presentness, he has as his world a mediated world cluttered with purposes.
Oh, there's a phrase to take home. A mediated world cluttered with purposes. Every time I read that, and I've read that, I've, I've, I've read that dozens of times. Every time I read that, I, I close my eyes and make a little vow. In other words, life lived in the historical context without a cosmology that does justice to history. And so it's just moving the pieces on the board. No sense of something else. Surviving, prospering, getting the kids to a college education, whatever it is. No deeper sense, the kind that came to Jung on the plains of Africa or to Robert Duncan, wherever he was when he stepped into that world. No sense of that as the, as the temporal context of our lives. Part of this moving pieces on the board, Dante, ref, Dante refers in, uh, many times in his writings to this, to this Florentine historical controversy between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. These are the, the papal and the imperial parties in Florence that were that hated each other tremendously. Uh, and then they had this, this tendency to subdivide. As soon as one of them was dominant enough, uh, it would subdivide into its two factions. This is the way it would always be. As soon as, as soon as one of two factions becomes dominant, really dominant, doesn't really have to worry about its opponent, it subdivides. You, there are so many cases of this in history, it's, it's, it's a, it's a law of history at the superficial level. And Dante refers to it many times. Justinian refers in Canto VI to the situation in Florence, somewhat obliquely. Florence, the symbol of Florence is the lily. He says, one, spe- one speeds the golden lilies on to force the public standard, and one seizes it for private gain, and who knows which is worse. He refers to a pox on both your houses. See? That kind of living out history in that, kind of way, masking what it really might be at a deeper level, playing instead in a world, a mediated world cluttered with purposes. And there's a great distinction which we've talked about here before, which always is helpful, just a little mental device to make a distinction between meaning and purpose. Uh, because most of us, when we, what was it that, was it Orwell or somebody said we, we lose the, or Huxley, I don't know, one of those, said we, we, when, we, when, we lo- when we lose sight of the end, we redouble the means. Uh, well, the, when, we don't, when there's no sense of meaning, uh, the next best thing is to have a purpose. And uh, you can conjure up, there's lots of purposes you can get whipped up about, see. Uh, but it's not the same thing as meaning. And that, I think, is what Eliot spent a long time in his career pounding away at. So the story of Justinian is that he had to discover the mystery of the Incarnation in order to get at the real business of history. And as soon as he discovered the meaning of the Incarnation, he understood that the real historical business of history had nothing whatsoever to do with fame and glory and that it had nothing at all to do with partisan history, melodramatic history, the, the sordid 
chronology of winners and losers. It had nothing to do with that. Well, apropos of Dante and Justinian taking shots at the Guelphs and Ghibellines, a historian of our time, Arnold Toynbee, says something interesting about the two major contenders on the modern chessboard. And he wrote this. Communism, which is another of our latter-day religions, is, I think, a leaf taken out of the book of Christianity, a leaf torn out and misread. Democracy is another leaf from the book of Christianity, which has also, I fear, been torn out, and while perhaps not misread, has certainly been half-emptied of meaning by being divorced from its Christian context and secularized. And we have obviously for a number of generations past been living on spiritual capital. I mean, clinging to Christian practice without possessing the Christian belief. And practice unsupported by belief is a wasting asset, as we have suddenly discovered to our dismay in this generation. Well, most who get this far lose... lose. When they begin to discover that about history, they lose interest in it uh, and go on to something else, theology or philosophy or – but that wasn't the case with, uh, with Toynbee, nor was it the case with, with John Lukacs. Uh, here's what he wrote. The Western world has yet to see the appearance of a truly classic historian, a historian Dante a historian Shakespeare. To this I shall add that I have grown more certain of this every year that sooner or later someone with all the natural ease of a genius will suddenly, suddenly reveal to us a new kind of history for which there will have been hardly any precedent. Now, this is a professional historian who is saying we haven't begun to get at what history means. We're like children playing around at the edges of it. And he says he, 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 his deep suspicion is, is that any moment somebody's going to come along and reveal to us what history is. And it will have hardly any precedent. The question is, does it have any? And if so, what is it? Well, the next thing was the crucifixion. Canto 7, the crucifixion comes up. Big explanation. Beatrice has to explain the crucifixion. Why was the crucifixion? Well, it, it finally comes to the fact that only God could pull the fat out of the fire. That was why the, the incarnation had to happen. And the crucifixion was the was the final act of the Incarnation. Without the crucifixion, uh, the Incarnation could, could have been, uh, one could, could have regarded the Incarnation as, uh, as pulling up at the last minute. But the crucifixion was all the way through to the end and a bitter end. So it was, a, it was the certain indication that it was a full Incarnation. Go back to Toynbee. Toynbee, early on in his, and for many years in his life, held what was a, 
reasonably widely regarded notion about uh, a historical dynamic, which was this, which was that in the Western world Christianity and in the other uh, areas of the great other great religions, whatever they were, Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever, that the that the job of history was civilization and that the job of the great religions was to incubate the remnants of a dying civilization in order to make it available for implantation in a newly emerging one. Classic example of that would be the Dark Ages and the monastery. See? That 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 the religion would be and 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 uh, Toynbee thought early on that the that the the historical task of Christianity was to preserve the stuff of civilization through the Dark Ages, through the collapse of one civilizational impulse, so that it would be available for the new civilizational impulse. Later in his life, he came to what was almost exactly the opposite understanding, which was he came and this is and this he comes to this not by sitting around speculating, but by being absorbed in the study of history. He came to understand, speaking in the Christian con, in the Western Christian context, he came to understand that the business of history is religion. And that the business of a civilization is to take an original enthusiasm from the religious impulse and to ramify it into a civilization. And then at that peak point to lose touch with the religious impulse that gave birth to it and to decline. And as it declines, the religion which gave birth to it in the first place deepens. At the peak of the civilization, that religion gets trivialized with everything else. But as the civilization declines, that religious impulse is deepened and awakened again until when that when that cultural cycle concludes the religious impulse is glowing again. So that instead of religion being there to preserve the stuff of civilization, civilization is there as a stepping stone for the religious impulse. It throws, in a sense, the religion throws off a civilization uh, and then and then reconnects with its own roots as that civilization collapses. The secular catastrophe deepens Christianity. That's that's finally what Toynbee said. Christianity gives birth to the civilization. The secular catastrophe, which which is the decline of that civilization, rekindles the the Christian impulse. All of that early in his life, he saw it as being the way civilization gets carried on. 
Later in his life, he, he realizes it's the way the religious impulse gets deepened through history. It keep, each time it gets deeper as that happens. There's one little uh, uh, warning in all this, and that is the, that the religious benefit of declining civilization uh, is only available for those who have not so totally identified their religion with that civilization that they, that they expire with it. Uh, one 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 thinks of some elements in the in the Christian uh, community uh, these days who are so identified with with uh, you know the red white and blue or whatever else you know whatever that that it, it so there has to be there has to ma- has to maintain some kind of distinction in order to survive that collapse. Toynbee then says, if we ever come to the grips as historically minded people with the deeper implication of that dynamic, we will wake up to something. This is how he puts it. He says, among, among the many things we will wake up to, one of the more salient is the following, and I'll quote Toynbee, that the greatest new event will not now be the monotonous rise of yet another secular civilization out of the bosom of the Christian church in the course of these latter centuries, it will still be the crucifixion and its spiritual consequences. Now that's Arnold Toynbee speaking as a historian that the, the great event will not be this new civilization we see, you know, coming up out of, out of Silicon Valley. It will be the crucifixion. 